And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, we are back in San Miguel de Allende in Mexico. I think many of you know that my wife and I spend uh, part of the uh, cold, rainy weather period in up in Bainbridge, uh, down here in the sun and surrounded by beautiful flowers and all that is so magic uh, about this uh, this city. Um, I know, by the way, that the quality of the sound here in what I call my recording studio, my office in our home, is, um, is, is not as good as what I have uh, up on Bainbridge, so I, I do apologize for that. I do have what I consider to be a very interesting uh, discussion today because I want to talk about the returns the market have gotten uh, for the last 20 years. I want to find out how good uh, my predictions have been uh, over this 20-year period. And then I want to end this particular podcast talking about what others are predicting for the coming decade. But I do think the best lessons for us are found in looking back over this last 20 years. And to help you, uh, we have a link in the description of this podcast to a periodic periodic table that we have talked about before, produced by the Callan Organization, and uh, it is in full color, and I know that uh, whether you look at it while you listen to this recording, uh, or you look at it later, you're going to find it filled with all sorts of interesting outcomes that I think will uh, be great evidence that it is very difficult to know what's going to happen next. But as I look at the predictions I made 20 years ago, almost every one of them came true. So stay tuned. If you haven't gotten a link to that page, you might want to stop this uh, podcast and make the copy, or you can go over to that page And you can look at it right now. And here's what what I'm looking at. I'm looking at a a table, much like the periodic table of uh, elements that we we had to face in school. Uh, Fortunately, there are way fewer uh, things we have to look at here to make the best use of this particular table. It's nicely done because it's in four colors, uh, and, uh, and so that allows us to look at uh, some 10 different asset classes. Uh, and let me just tell you about the 10 asset classes. There's uh, U.S. fixed income. Uh, there's, and that, by the way, is a, a Barclays, a Bloomberg uh, Uh, bond index, aggregate bond index. There's a high-yield bond index. There are T-bills, or in essence, a cash equivalent. There's a small cap equity 
uh, uh, index. By the way, this is not small cap value. This is small cap equity, which would be a blend of both the, uh, uh, the well, it's the Russell 2000. So it, it's a blend of both some growth and some value. Uh, there is also a, an emerging market equity uh, index. Now, unfortunately, because this table shows us annual results of these asset classes from 1999 through 2018. So we can see, and by the way, there are a few more, but we can see how each asset class does each year. I mention this now about emerging markets because they don't have in their study the results for 1999 and 2000. And just for what it's worth, it was an amazing year 1999 was uh, for emerging markets. They were up uh, 60 to 70 percent, and in 2000 uh, they suffered a, a small loss. Uh, I don't remember, but I think it was 10 to 15 percent. So I'm sorry they, they, they don't use the index that goes back further, but we're going to do the best we can with what they've given us, and then I'll talk about going to other indexes to be able to fill in those two years later so you'll have the full story. Then there's a non-U.S. fixed income portfolio index. Those will be international bonds. There's a REIT, a real estate index, there's large cap U.S. equity. That is the S&P 500. Now, there is no large cap value index in this particular table of investment returns. And then there's an international uh, index, which is, is uh, uh, large cap. Uh, what is the um, MSCI world without USA index. So it is the kind of the equivalent of the S&P 500, large companies from uh, the developed markets in Europe, the Middle East, the Pacific, and, and Canada. So those are the 10 asset classes. And here is what I find fascinating to, to, to learn here uh, because it's so visual. Uh, it just so happens the color that stands out to me is emerging markets. And what do we see? Well, we see that uh, as far as, by the way, emerging markets are orange. Uh, and I see that emerging markets were number one in 2003 and number two out of the 10 in 2004 and number one in 2005 and number two in 2006 and Number one in 2007, and then whoops, falls off a cliff, goes all the way to the bottom in 2008, and pops right back up to the top in 2009. I mean, it was an amazing run for emerging markets, and they were not small returns when they were number one up 58% in 2003, up 34% in 2005, up 39% in 2007, and up 78% in 2009. So this was a period that if you could just get the rest of the years to look like that, would have 
made it an amazing return, but instead it came down to earth because in uh, 2008 it was down 53 and 2000 was the the last place asset class and in 2011 down 18 percent last again 2013 down 2.6 next to last and it was in last place in 2015 and 2018 in both cases losing about 15 percent in each of those years so could we have could anybody have predicted that for a period of time, that emerging market would be on top and not on top with little, with small returns, but huge returns. And would we have known when to get out and go to cash uh, when they uh, ended up being the worst uh, of the asset classes in four out of the 20 years? So you can follow every asset class. Now, unfortunately, what they don't do is they don't give us the total return over the 20 years for each of the, uh, the 10 different asset classes. But I've done some work here for you to, to, to give you a way to kind of compare how you would have done with some of the asset classes that are so near and dear to us. And the one that just pops out so to me is the S&P 500, the, the large cap uh, asset class. And that's the, the, the stock index. Now, it's interesting to note that for that 20-year period, which included 1999, by the time 1999 is dropped off, this return could likely go down because in 1999 was a great year for the stock market, I think up about 22%. But over the whole period, the S&P 500 compounded at 5.6%. And I have told people that the total market index, which represents a majority of the money, equity money, invested in target date funds, is really just about the same as owning the S&P 500 because the large companies represent uh, such an overwhelming percentage of the value of public corporations, that even by adding a bit of small cap and a bit of mid cap, it doesn't change much. And so what do we know? The total market over that 20 years compounded at 5.6, as well as the S&P compounded at 5.6. Now, what did I say back in the beginning of 1999, what the future would look like? Now, I didn't talk about 20 years. I talked about for however long a person might look at returns, but, but they needed to be long-term returns. Even sometimes 10 years can be uh, misleading. So what do we know about the 20-year period for the small cap index uh, as shown here in this periodic table? Well, it turns out and with all the ups and downs, sometimes number one, sometimes down to the bottom of the stack, that the compound rate of return of small, the small cap index was 7.2%. So that is about 1.6% better than the S&P 500 or the total market index.
Now, I, I note this difference and how important it is because I talk a lot, and I'll be talking more and more as the year goes by, about the importance of finding any way that we can to increase our long-term return by a half of 1%. Whether it's in the asset classes we use to put together a portfolio, whether it's in lower expenses, whether it's in less turnover, uh, whether it's the way that you invest, whether it's the taxes you pay. Uh, I'm looking for at least uh, an extra half percent. And here, just in the ownership of small cap index over this period of time, we can see that there is uh, an advantage of 1.6%. Now, it is interesting to note that when I looked at the average of all of the equity asset classes, and let's remember that I was handicapped because the table does not show the uh, emerging markets for 99 and 2000. So um, I, I missed some great returns there, but I'll try to catch up here on that in a second. But here's, here's what I did. I looked at the returns of owning all of the asset classes every year and at the end of the year rebalancing so that now we're going to own the worst and we're going to own the best of the equity asset classes. And it turns out that in 1999, if you read the popular articles about the S&P 500, they said that it was virtually impossible for the individual investor or experts to be able to beat the S&P 500. That there was very, the odds were really, really against you uh, by a long shot of being able to do better than the S&P. So the answer was, just put your money in the S&P 500. Well, that was not my recommendation then, and it's not my recommendation now. And the, old, the younger you are, the, the more strongly I feel about that. But what I do know is that if you simply uh, owned all of the asset classes, that over that period of time, you would have had a 7% compound rate of return, just breaking up the money in between the different equity asset classes. Remember, I was restricted here. I couldn't add any uh, large cap value. I couldn't add any small cap value. I could add, I had some international large cap blend, but I didn't have international large cap value or international small cap value, things I would like to see in the portfolio. But the bottom line is the average of what I had available to me was a 7% compound rate of return. So let's make sure you understand what those equity asset classes were. There were five of them. U.S. small cap, U.S. large cap blend, uh, REITs, uh, international index, and finally, uh, emerging markets. So five asset classes, which means instead of having all your money in the S&P 500, you would have had 20%. And you would have had 20% in small cap and 20% 
in uh, international and 20% in REITs and 20% in emerging markets. Again, that is not the best combination, but that's the combination you would have owned in equities using this wonderful chart, a table that we have here from the Callan organization. Now, as I looked at it, I wanted to know what would upset you what uh, during that uh, 20-year period if you owned all of the asset classes instead of just the S&P 500, which is what basically the people who are in target date funds are mostly exposed to as far as equity, and the rest of the equity is typically with uh, the international large cap blend index. But here's what I know about this 20-year period. I look not at the good years because nobody complains about the good years. What I looked at were the bad years, the losing years. And for what it's worth, the S&P 500 had only five losing years. The all equity, the 20% each in the five different asset classes, they had seven losing years. So from that particular viewpoint, you could say that, well, the S&P 500 sounds less risky. But let's look at the implications of what happened during those losing years. In 2000, the S&P was down 9.1. The average of the five equity asset classes down 2.9. In 2001, the S&P was down 11.9. The five asset classes, 7.4. And in 2002, the S&P 500 was down 22.1. And the average of the five down 12.8. Now, for those three years, it would have felt to every one of us that it was more it is more conservative to own all five of those asset classes rather than the one. Now, in 2008, both the average and the S&P 500 lost money. The S&P down 37, the average of the five down 43.2. And then you had a couple more losing years. Well, remember, you had seven losing years with the all equity, but here's here's kind of the bottom line. The average loss of the all equity portfolio was a loss of 11.2% per year. With the five losses of the S&P 500, uh, the uh, average was 16.9. But if you look at the total loss experienced by those seven years with the all equity, it was a total loss of 78.4. If you took the total loss of the five losing years with the S&P 500, it was a loss of 84.5. Now, you know, I'm always going to tell you that, that in the past results are no guarantee of the future. But this was a, this was a period when it wasn't easy to make money in the market. In fact, when I talk at the end of this uh, podcast about what people are predicting for the future, you're going to find out that there's, there's hardly anybody who's predicting the next decade looks like it's going to be very profitable 
for the S&P 500. Well, it hasn't been profitable for 20 years. Well, I mean, yes, it's been profitable, but not like what we would expect because we typically think in terms of a 10% compound rate of return. But when we go through these periods, if there's anything we can do to increase the return without having to take substantially more risk, then maybe that'll make a big difference. My wife and I are are taking out 5% a year of our portfolio. And part of that portfolio's in bonds. With bonds, they're not paying a whole lot. So we need to get better than 5% in the equity part of our portfolio to stay even. And then of some course, of some years we're going to be down and lose money and other years we're going to make more than than 5. But here's what I know. It may be that, that, that broadening our diversification may, in fact, give us a chance to make the return that we absolutely need in order to stay even if we're in, particularly if we're in retirement. So uh, the bottom line here is that the S&P 500 underperformed the average of all four by about uh, almost one and a half percent. Now, what about, uh, oh, and by the way, I should mention the bond index, the bond index, that U.S. index, compounded at 4.6. It almost made as much as the S&P 500. And the difference in risk was huge because the bonds have much less risk. Now, how would it have helped if you could have reached in and added a few more asset classes to the portfolio? How did small cap value do over that 20 year? Now, we have 20 years. We have the the returns from DFA uh, on small cap. and, and, uh, And we know that the small cap return, small cap value, U.S., was about 11.2. That would have helped. Large cap value was about 7.4. That might have helped. Now, by the way, I didn't mention it, but REITs, REITs compounded at 8.2. About 2.5% better per year than the S&P 500. And emerging markets, if we could look at the the entire period, with all those huge returns on the upside, terrible returns on the downside, the compound rate of return was 8.8. So almost everything I expected happened. Stocks beat bonds. Small companies beat large companies. Value companies beat growth companies, and REITs beat the S&P 500. And if we dug deeper, we'd see that all of those relationships held up in the international markets as well. Now, you may say there's a big difference between saying, uh, predicting what the market itself is going to do over the next decade 
That's for real experts to be able to do that. And you may say it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to be able to predict that more risky asset classes are going to do better than less risky asset classes because that's all that I did. But what I did do to take it beyond that was to say, spread the money across all of these asset classes and have enough fixed income in there to protect you during those terrible periods like 2000 through 2002 and and, and, uh, 2007 through 2009. Now, there's another point I want to make here, and that's about bonds. I often get, I suspect because Vanguard is a big believer in international bonds, I often get questions from listeners and readers who want to know, why don't I recommend international bonds? And it's because, it's because I, want the in, I want the fixed income portion of the portfolio to play the role of defender against losses when the market is in decline. That's what I want for you. That's why in your IRAs, I, I, we, we, we recommend uh, governments, short-term, intermediate-term. And in the taxable accounts, depending on your tax bracket, we're going to want you to be in tax exempts. Now, that's something you've got to work out between you and your, and your tax expert. Of course, you may be the tax expert, but you'll know how to figure that out. But here's why I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the non-U.S. fixed income uh, asset classes. You're having to deal with difference in currencies. And in 1999, there was a decline in the value of non-U.S. fixed income of 8.8%. In 2000, it was 3.9. In 2005, it was 8.7. In 2013, it was 3.1. 14, 3.1. And in 2018, another loss, 2.2. Six losing years, averaging about 5% a year. If we look at the U.S. market, the loss in 1999, 0.8. 2013, 2%. 2014, 3.1. 2018, 2.2. Four losing years, averaging 2%. So, from my view, if we were to put international bonds in with the U.S. bonds, we are likely going to have some periods that expose us to larger losses then we're willing to accept. So the bottom line is, I'm not a fan of adding the non-U.S. fixed income. I also should just take a moment here and uh, make a comment about high yield uh, a bonds index or bond funds, because that index is also in the uh, Callan study. Um, high yield are 
are risk-wise a combination, something in between stocks and bonds. And uh, the fact is, is, if we're using bonds to protect against the downside, you're not going to find the protection that, that you, you want from the high yields because, for example, uh, in 2008, they were down 28.2%, uh, the, uh, the index. Uh, and there were some bond funds that were down as much as 40% in, uh, in 2008. Um, I, I do want to just go back for a second before we move on to the predictions for the future. Uh, I want to go back and uh, simply one more time have you focus on the on all the lessons on that that uh, that table that periodic table see every one of us are challenged to find some sort of a strategy to deal with all this volatility that these equity asset classes all of them they all are volatile and do things we don't expect I mean, who would have expected in 1999, an asset class that for 25 years has compounded at uh, 17% would, for the next uh, 19 years, compound at uh, 5.5%. That just isn't what we would expect. And so to protect ourselves against the unexpected, I want, I want you to consider that just spreading your money amongst a whole bunch of these different asset classes is a smarter thing than ever depending on any one. Now, yes, in many cases, I have suggested that young investors start out with their money in small cap value. And I, I still believe in that. But for the people who are, are trying to do this in a more conservative way, middle-of-the-road way, I'd like to see it spread amongst them all because the minute we don't spread amongst it all, we have to find a, a, another strategy. And what I'm worried for you is, is that strategy will be, be based on the over-optimization of the past, just as it would have been so easy to put all your money in the S&P 500 in 2000 after 25 years of great performance. And oh, by the way, these other asset classes, small cap value, large cap value, the international asset classes, they did well uh, from that, in that period uh, from uh, 1975 to 1999. So the question is, at the end of the day, what is it that we're going to replace this massive diversification with that we think is going to give us a better unit of return per unit of risk, and now the future. I want to I want to stop looking backwards, and I want to look forward. I'm not going to change my prediction one bit, because my prediction is not about how much you're going to make for the next 10 or 20 years, because I have absolutely no way to know what that's going to be. But there are people in this industry, that's what they're paid for. They're paid to be able to predict with enough confidence that people will follow them because the people who hire them, whether it's Vanguard or, or Morgan Stanley or other firms, Wells Fargo, 
if these people aren't any good at predicting the future, why would they have them on staff and pay them the big bucks? So I will say again, stocks will outperform bonds. I will say that small will outperform large. I will say that value is likely to outperform growth. And I think 10 or 20 years from now, you will find out that those predictions are still working. Just as I said to people in 1999. But this is different because now we're talking about where the rubber meets the road. Forecasts that have to do, and I'm thinking particularly in, the, in, in terms of the retirees or people who are close to retirement. And all of a sudden, it doesn't matter whether big outperforms small or, or value outperforms growth. What you're really worried about is what is that, just the basic return of the market. Are we going to have another 20 years or even 10 years that the S&P 500 makes 5.5%? Well, let me share with you uh, some information uh, from Morningstar. Uh, Christine Benz, uh, who I just think is, is, is terrific. If you get a chance to go see one of her presentations, I hope you will do that. But what she has done in this article at Morningstar, and by the way, we'll include a link to this article, but what she's done is she's talked to people or read comments from these organizations uh, in terms of what they believe about the next uh, 10, in some cases 15, maybe even 20 years. And in some cases, the people who made the prediction predicted it after inflation, and in some cases they predicted it before inflation. I'll note that, but it makes it a little more difficult to do an, app, you know, an exact apples-to-apples apples comparison. But BlackRock, BlackRock, huge organization. In fact, I don't even know. They might even have as much money under management or more than Vanguard. A lot of their money is, for, is institutional. But what they predict... Uh, for the next uh, decade, is a 7% uh, in the U.S. Uh, equity market, large caps, like the S&P 500, and 9% for large caps in the international markets. So here's one for international over, over U.S., and, uh, and also, by the way, they predict 3.3% for the aggregate bond index that we just used in that Callan study. So they're predicting that stocks will do better than bonds, and that for those who are basing their retirement on bonds, they're not likely to see a very, uh, a very big return. Then there's John Bogle himself, founder of the Vanguard Group. His prediction, this is before inflation, is 4 to 5% returns, and that's a big reduction from the 7% returns for, um, at BlackRock, and for bonds, 4%. So there were similar re predictions, BlackRock and John Bogle, now, it is interesting to note 
that just several months ago, he was then predicting, this is in October, that earnings growth would, uh, uh, would, would put their expected return on equities, large cap blend S&P 500 at 7%. In just a couple of months, he has dropped his, his prediction by about 40%. GMO. Uh, this is a organization that typically uh, looks at the dark side. <laughs> they're very bearish, and they ha- they're typically bearish, uh, and that's the way they manage money. In fact, uh, they they the, the fund that is public that one can see their return uh, going back over the last ten years because of their of their bearishness, their return was about 5.3% versus the S&P 500 at 13.5. But they just have not been confident. And, in fact, right now, they are predicting a negative 4.1% real return for U.S. large caps, which means they're basically believing the market's not going to make anything uh, on a nominal basis. Now, they have a fairly big following. And, um, and, and so um, I, I would say that if, in fact, that's what happens, and if, in fact, small cap does better than large, and if, in fact, value does better than growth, at least by having some part of your portfolio in value and small cap. I'm not saying all of it, but some part of it. Maybe it'll give you the opportunity to squeeze out at least some kind of a return. And it turns out that uh, GMO actually kind of predicts that's what's going to happen. They see, uh, they're predicting about 8% real returns. That's after inflation for emerging markets uh, in, in the value area, 4.4% in the, in the uh, combination of growth and, and balanced in the, uh, uh, in the emerging market area. And they are predicting that uh, all international securities are, uh, as a group, are going to do much better than the U.S. Uh, in this uh, next uh, decade. J.P. Morgan, another big outfit, huge following. Their their prediction is 5.25% nominal, that's before inflation, looking out 10 to 15 years, and about 4.5% nominal for investment-grade corporate bonds, uh, and the expectation would be less in the governments. They also believe that developed market stocks are going to earn 8.5% nominal return uh, in, in, the, in the future. So, again, that is uh, advocating uh, for having uh, some internationals in the portfolio. And another uh, uh, major company, Vanguard itself, uh, they're predicting 3 to 5% range in returns uh, for the U.S. equities, this is this is before uh, inflation, 
and uh, 6 to 8% returns for non-U.S. equities. Again, another organization like so many, in fact, all of them, are predicting that internationals are going to do better uh, than U.S. I guess what a lot of people would like these folks to predict is when will the next bear market happen? How big will it be? How long will it last? And I suspect some people will even try to answer those questions in the hopes that somehow you'll trust them and do business with them. And uh, I, I just, I don't trust those kind of predictions. And I don't even know that my predictions of large underperforming small or value outperforming growth or, you know, what U.S. or international may do, certainly on a short-term basis, I don't think anybody, anybody is worth listening to except to the extent that if somebody can show you how bad bad may be for the, for the portfolio you have, the amount that you have in fixed income, the amount that you have in equity, the amount that you have in S&P 500, and the amount that you have in a more balanced portfolio. That is what all of our fine-tuning tables are about. And if you haven't looked at them, please do at paulmerriman.com. Look under best advice and you'll see fine-tuning your asset allocation for the S&P 500, for an all-value portfolio, for a worldwide equity portfolio, for 50-50 U.S. International, for 70-30 U.S. International. All tables built to help serve you and give you a better understanding of what the past looks like so you can make better decisions about the future. I hope this all helps. I hope you have as much fun with the Callan table as I did. And uh, I'll be talking to you from San Miguel for a couple of months. And uh, maybe I'll even report on some of the excitement down here. All the best. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.